Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. continue to share in the reading of scripture, we give attention now to the gospel according to Mark in chapter 8. I invite you to hear these words from Jesus. And so he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at the disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then he called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who want to lose their life for my sake. And for the sake of the gospel, we'll save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May God bless our reading of the Holy Scriptures and let us say together, Amen. We join me in a spirit and attitude of prayer? Holy God, our hearts are filled with gratitude this morning as you've seen fit to call us together to this place in this sacred hour and this holy day that's been set apart, that we might know again your grace and love and kindness, that we might experience again forgiveness and care and healing, that we might hear again your spirit speak through the words of scripture. We pray now in this season of Lent that you would help to enliven our spirits, that we might be attuned to your work in the world and your word in our lives, that we might make space in this season for you to shape and reshape us according to your will, your love, and your mercy. God, speak to us now. We, your people, speak through the words of Scripture, speak through my words, perhaps in spite of my words, that we, your people, will be lifted up and knit together in communion with you. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I, I think you will agree with me, I don't think this is a controversial statement, that uh, relationships uh, are at their best. Relationships are, are deeper and more meaningful uh, when they go beyond their legal obligations. Right? Obviously, the relationships that come to mind in that respect are the relationships that we experience in our immediate family. Uh, obviously, a spouse, we have some legal obligation to our husband or our wife, but, but we don't usually think about our relationship with our spouse in terms of its legal nature. Hopefully not, right? We think about the love that we share, the love that we promised to one another on our wedding day, the commitment we made in our vows to care for one another and to be with one another until death do us part, until death parts us, right? So that relationship is marked by something much more profound and much more meaningful than simply the, the legal definition of marriage. Extending further into the household, right, you think about our children, right? We have some legal obligation between a parent and a child, some legal responsibilities as the government see them. But, but I don't look at my children and think of them as a legal responsibility, right? I look at them in terms of the way in which they have taught me so much about God's love and care, the way in which I want to give so much to them, to help to care for them, to make their lives meaningful and beautiful and worthwhile, to help them come 
become disciples of Jesus, right? To raise them in the church, right? Those, those relationships are more meaningful when they go beyond just their legal definition. There are many other examples we could think of, even friendship, right? Some of you have had friends for many years with whom uh, you share your life, for whom you would do anything, right? There's no legal responsibility there, but there's a deep commitment, a deep sense of love and care. So relationships are more meaningful when they go beyond just their legal definition. I offer you that image this morning as we begin because that is the framework that Paul is writing from as he tries to explain here in Romans 4 how the Christian faith reflects the the faith that began in Abraham. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Genesis. We didn't actually read from Genesis, but we're going to talk about Genesis as a way of talking about Romans 4 as Paul gives a little sermon on the faith of Abraham and what it means now for those who follow Jesus. And the main point that Paul makes today in Romans 4 about Abraham is that Abraham's relationship with God preceded the law, right? Abraham's relationship with God preceded the law, right? What do we mean when we say the law? When we talk about the law, we usually mean Moses, right? Moses leads the people in the Exodus. Moses goes up on the mount, receives the law in the form of the Ten Commandments. So that's the beginning of the law. And then later we get the Levitical law written down to help organize the community of faith. So the law is a significant part of the Old Testament, right? It shapes the life of of Jewish worship in in a very significant way, right? But Paul is trying to get to see, trying to get his Christian readers and hearers to see that that really the story of the Old Testament actually comes before the law. And it comes through the person of Abraham. Well, at that time, the person of Abram and his wife Sarah, who who are late in their life, who do not have any children, who do not expect to have any children. And God chooses this unlikely guy, Abram and his wife Sarah, and God makes this absurd promise. If you believe me and if you will follow me, then you will be the patriarchs, you will be the mother and the father of a great nation, a a great many nations in the future. Now, on its surface, this is, of course, totally unbelievable. And and Abram, at this time, right, is not convinced either, right? He's late in life. He doesn't have many years left. His wife has never had children. They've sort of resolved to this fact that they're not going to have any children. And so this new promise that has sort of come out of thin air, it's, it's impossible, right? It's unbelievable. And so Abram and God sort of go back and forth. Abram uh, is not always incredibly, uh, incredibly on point. He sometimes makes some missteps. He sometimes doesn't understand. But after a few chapters of the back and forth, finally we get to this really important verse that Paul quotes today in Romans 4. And he, being Abraham, believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Before there was a Ten Commandments, before there was a Levitical law, before any of the instructions about the moral and ethical life of the people of Israel, the story began with this unlikely character, Abraham, and his willingness to believe an impossible promise. Abraham, it's, it's not said that, that Abraham's wise. It's not said that Abraham's particularly spiritual or, or prayerful. We know that Abraham didn't read and study the Bible because there wasn't one to say. This is just one man chosen by God who believes an impossible promise and then follows through by going into this new land and beginning this family that will become the people, the covenant people of Israel. So in Romans 4, as we kind of jump back ahead to Paul's language, Paul is trying to get his hearers and his readers to see that 
that the, the requirement to be a person of God, the, the expectation to be a person of God is not about law. Right? It's not about legal descriptions. It's about, about faith. To believe in God is to believe the promises of God, to have the faith that what God is communicating is true, and to, and to obey, to follow God in this journey. And so Paul is writing, right, Paul, someone who is Jewish and is familiar with the, our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, someone who is familiar, well familiar with the stories of the Old Testament. Paul is reaching all the way back to Genesis and saying, really, the, the prototype, the first person to believe this impossible promise from God is Abraham. And Abraham's faith is his righteousness, and he becomes obedient to God and goes into this new land to help start this new family. <coughs> I had to excuse me a little bit. Sorry about that. So how do we connect what's happening there in Romans 4 and Genesis with Abraham to what Jesus is saying in Mark 8? I'm going to try to pull those together for you today. So as we get to Mark chapter 8, reminder that Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Mark's about 16 chapters, and so Mark 8 is almost halfway to the middle. So, so up until this point, we've read other parts of Mark lately. Jesus is baptized. Jesus goes into the wilderness. Jesus begins to travel, healing, and teaching. We have the wonderful stories in Mark's Gospel of Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, Jesus rallying the disciples, inviting them to follow him. The point is, as we get to Mark chapter 8, the enthusiasm around Jesus and his ministry is incredibly high, right? I mean, it's all optimism and hope and good news. Look at this new man, this man Jesus. Look what he can do. Look at all the people following him. I mean, the crowds are, are thrilled, right? The disciples are enthused, right? This is a wonderful thing that's happening. And it's sort of out of nowhere we get the story we read today. This is the first time that Jesus has said this to them. He says to the crowd, but the disciples are really listening closely. He says to them, the Son of Man, now that's an Old Testament term, that's a messianic term from the book of Daniel. So Jesus is now kind of referencing the book of Daniel and the Messiah prophecies about himself. The Son of Man will undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the priests, the scribes, and be killed. Now it's just hard to overstate. What a shock and disappointment that must have been for those who knew and had been following Jesus. I mean, this is someone who has power over demons. This is someone who's, who's healed people, who's brought the, the young girl back to life in Mark chapter 5. I mean, this, this is incredible what he's done. And now we're told that everyone's going to turn against him and he's going to be put to death. Now, he also says that he's going to be raised in three days. Of course, that's the Easter celebration, but the disciples don't really hear that, right? They're focused on the suffering and the death, and Peter says what all of us would have said. No way, Jesus. There's no way this is going to happen to you. And quickly, Jesus turns to him and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Pretty intense rebuke there. Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on human things and not divine things. Human things and not divine things. We can appreciate Peter. Often Peter is the one who sort of stumbles and kind of says what we're all thinking. And, and we can kind of empathize with Peter, right? Because we would have said the same thing. Like, you've, you've got to be kidding. Jesus, surely not, right? This is kind of the, the challenge of Lent, that there's a temptation for us to focus, focus on the best times, the, the times of glory and celebration and Easter. And we tend to resist. We tend to push back whenever Jesus says, you know, we'll be betrayed, there'll be suffering, and there'll be death. So we should all kind of empathize with Peter here. Our resistance to hearing Jesus talk about the, 
the cross and the way in which his life will end. Anytime uh, we read this text, of course, it's a a well-known text, as Jesus predicts his death and Peter uh, challenges him and then Jesus talks about bearing your cross. Anytime we read this cross and we think about focusing our mind and our heart on on the cross of Jesus, I go back to one of my favorites, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Those of you who have been with me now a few years know that he's my favorite and, and I almost have a Bonhoeffer quote for every sermon. I just choose every now and then to actually bring them in. Famously, though, Bonhoeffer wrote a little a book called The Cost of Discipleship, kind of on these themes, and I encourage you to read it if you haven't. Uh, but he has this great section where he talks about cheap grace versus costly grace. It's kind of about this idea. when We, we kind of want to see the good and the glory, but we don't necessarily want to recognize the challenges and the cost. That's sort of a long quote, and I'm going to read it. I know it's small font, but I invite you to hear Bonhoeffer's words. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without a cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will sell all that he has, the pearl of great price to buy from the merchant. He will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for a man whose sake will pluck out the eye that causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man knocks. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. And that quote from Bonhoeffer stirs up in my spirit so much this desire to want to follow Jesus and to acknowledge the challenge of the cross. Jesus continues as he's talking to his disciples, not only will I be suffer, well, not only will I suffer and be and be put to death, but but if any of you want to follow me, if any of you want to follow me, then you need to lose your life as well. You need to take up your cross. For what does it profit to gain the whole world if you lose your life? Now, this is the first time that Jesus has sort of tested the disciples' faith in this way. Right? Not only am I going to be, be, be put to death, but, but I'm telling all of you, too, if you want to follow me, you need to lose your life. You need to give it all up. You need to give it all up for the sake of others. This Mark chapter 8 is a radical transition in the Gospel of Mark. We've gone from celebrations and parties and healings to now Jesus talking about his death and challenging us to die as well. As has been said many times, right, the life of a a Christian, the life of following Jesus, it is not a a spectator sport as it has sort of been up until now. Sort of watch Jesus at a distance, watch Jesus teach and heal, be be in awe of Jesus, be inspired by Jesus. Now Jesus has turned the tables and said, no, you've got to join me too. You've got to lose your life as well. We've got a handy little illustration here because we're in the political season. Uh, the spring election season, I know, does not hit us quite as hard as the November election season, the presidential, the national elections, but it's still an important time for our community. I'm not going to venture into the different uh, issues or candidates, but it's an important season, right? We have people in our church involved in different ways, people running for office, hoping to represent a portion of the city or the community, hoping to serve the community. We have ballot measures on there about schools, about uh, taxes, and about public service and all those things. So I hope you're paying attention to that. 
And I hope you have an appreciation for all the people who have put time and energy into those issues because they're doing it out of their hope for the, the goodwill, the future of the community. Even people who disagree, even people who are running against each other, even people who will vote in different ways. Right? It's inspired because we have this vision, this hope for our community. <coughs> and of course, as you learned in seventh grade civics, this is the, the kind of joy of our political process, that anyone can get involved, anyone can run for office, you can go to city council meetings, you can go meet with the county judge or the mayor, they'll tell you what's going on. I've heard countless speeches over the last five or six weeks on these different issues, people presenting them and talking about them, inviting us to participate, and still yet there's a lot of wonder, how many people will actually show up to vote? How many people care enough to make time to vote? How many people, will it be the right people, depending on which, which side of the aisle you're on, which, which way you view the issue? There's lots of these quotes out there. This one's uh, attributed to Thomas Jefferson sometimes, but it's also said it's not really clear if you ever said this. Uh, we in America do not have a government by the majority. We have a government by the majority who participate. That's certainly true for our city and our schools and our county. That's a pretty helpful way of thinking about what Jesus is telling the disciples. There will be a lot of people who are impressed with Jesus, who will come to the parties to watch him heal and teach. The crowds will be enormous. But there are only a few who actually are willing to participate, who are willing to join Jesus in giving their life away. I tried my best to bring together that Romans and Mark passage in my own head. It took a lot of work this week to try to sort out what does is, what is Romans and Abraham and Paul have to do with Jesus and take up your cross. And here's my best summary here on the concluding slide. I think Paul is trying to get us to understand about Abraham that God partners with humans through divine promises, often unbelievable and impossible promises like you, Abram and Sarah, uh, you will be the, the, the patriarch, the matriarch of a great nation. God partners with humans through divine promises and then the humans respond in faith by believing God First and foremost, that's what Abraham had to do. He had to believe that it was possible, and then by obedience and following in God's direction. So Paul is trying to get us, to see us, get us to see that obedience manifests faith, right? If you have faith, you will be obedient. As you practice obedience, your faith will grow, and you can always trust that God will fulfill God's promises. That's what Paul's saying about Abraham. And I think Paul is trying to get us to see that the same is true about Jesus. That in the same way that Abraham believed an impossible thing about God working through him and having children and having a family and being the, the patriarchs of a great nation, in the same way that that was an impossible thing to believe, Jesus is challenging his disciples to believe something equally impossible. That I will suffer and I will be put to death and on the third day I will be resurrected. And Jesus' challenge, like the challenge to Abraham, Jesus' challenge to his disciples is if you can believe in that promise, if you can believe in that good news and the power of the resurrection and the power of God to do the impossible thing, then you will respond in faith and obedience. And in Abraham's case, this meant going to a foreign land and trusting that he and his, his wife, though they were very old, trusting that they would be able to have children in this new land because this is God's power and God's work. In our case, Jesus says... It's not going to a new land and starting a new family, but it's, it's giving yourself away. If you really believe in the power of the resurrection, if you believe in God's promises, then you have no reason to hold any of your life back. 
You have no reason to hold any of your life back. You can live totally and fully for God and Jesus. You can give away your time and your money and your energy. And as you die to yourself, the more you give yourself away, the more you receive in return. That your life actually becomes far more rich and wonderful and exciting and interesting the less you live for and think about yourself. This was sort of the, the image for Abraham to, to not focus on himself, but to focus on God's promises and to be obedient. And so it is with Jesus. Not to think about ourselves, but to think about Christ and his resurrection and to follow in obedience. Now, I, I can just tell you briefly as we conclude here that certainly in my life this rings true. That the more time, and I, and I do this sometimes, right? The more time I spend thinking about Dane... The more time I start thinking about what Dane wants and what Dane needs and what Dane dreams for the future and what Dane hopes and how Dane spends Dane's time and what Dane's good at and what Dane's not good at, the more time I think about Dane, the more anxious and agitated and irritable and unproductive I become. And it just becomes sort of an inward cycle that collapses in on itself. But when I'm at my best, I don't really think about myself that much, right? I think about my family and what's going on with them and how I can be of help and how I can serve. I think about all the good things that are going on at church and the way I get to be involved and, and the way in which church has blessed me. I think about our community and the needs of our community. The more time and energy I spend thinking about other people, the way I can maybe serve them and help them, then the more happy and more joyous the more blessed I am. As we move toward the cross... We place our confidence in the promises of God that Jesus Christ will be, in the case of the disciples, or is resurrected. And because Jesus has been resurrected, we can give our lives away. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today in your bullet. Hello. Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.